Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Let me introduce myself. Those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is Rob Sweet. I'm one of our teaching pastors. You all know if you've been around for a while, we have a team. And, uh, but I have the privilege of having the Franklin campus, you, this congregation is home base for me. And uh, I love it. I, part of what I love is what we're doing this morning. I love uh, a chance that we're going to have to get to know each other better, to interact over some food, which uh, I'll introduce that in a little bit. Also to hear from one another. And uh, I'll go ahead and unapologetically and tell you now, we're going to ask for some of you to share. And I, you know, I would never call someone out, you know, pick on someone randomly, so no fear about that. But uh, we're going to ask for some volunteers to share what God's been doing in your life as we've been studying this book of Esther. And so I want to go ahead and and ask you to start thinking about that now. And I've got about eight or ten minutes or so of a recap of the series that I want to do. But I want to invite you to go ahead and be thinking about that. And God's going to call some of you in this room, four, five, six of you, we'll see, uh, to share with us. And, you know, part of the reason that we um, arrange the seats this way at the end of a series frequently, by the way, we call this Worship in the Round. And it's not technically round this time because we've got these two tables of food in front of us. But part of the reason is we, we want to bring ourselves out of our comfort zones a bit. In other words, I don't know if you noticed this, it's a little bit harder to sing when you feel like there's people watching you. Like, anybody notice that? You feel like, oh man, I, I want to focus my attention on the worship, on God, which is right and which is good. But this environment, this setup is a reminder that we are, as Eric already said, we're part of a community. We're part of a family. God didn't just sort of redeem us and say, okay, now go about living the Christian life on your own. No, he redeemed us into something, into a body, right? The body of Christ, into a community. And this is our community. This is our body. So that's one of the reasons we do that. And one of the reasons that we're going to open up the microphones at the end of the day. We want you to hear from more than just myself or Michael or Lloyd or Eric. Uh, we, We want you all to hear from one another. Well, let me first do a bit of a recap of where we've been in the study of Esther. And I know some of you have been here virtually every week or almost. Others of you have been in and out because it's been summertime and travel. Uh, Some of you, at least one couple that I met earlier, and and no doubt earlier, this is your very first time in the church this morning. So let me do a recap for all of us. This will be a reminder for some, and it'll be new for others. But the theme of our uh, study of Esther has been what's underneath the, the screen over there, veiled providence and visible faith. And so we unpacked this big theological concept of providence. You know, providence is how God gets things done. Providence is God's in control. Providence is God's on the move. But the thing about providence is, although he's in control, it's oftentimes veiled to us. In other words, we don't always have eyes to see. And oftentimes, it doesn't feel like God's on the move. It doesn't seem like, doesn't look like God's on the move. So just last week, we sort of talked about all the, the tragedy and things we've been experiencing in the news and how it feels like things are moving further and further and further away from God's sovereignty. But God's still in control. God is still in control. No matter how out of control things may seem to us. But we also want to have visible faith in the midst of veiled providence. So in other words, there's this call as we've studied this book of Esther, what would it look like for us to sort of step out and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be about the things that God is about. I'm going to be a visible expression of what God is up to a little bit behind the scenes sometimes because he's called us, his church, to be the visible expression of his work in the world. 
So that's what this idea of veiled providence, visible faith is. So I thought, you know, a lot of different ways we could recap this series. We could walk back through the story and tell it all over again, and we could just hit some themes. But as I thought about this, I said, you know, I think what I really would like to do is pull out one theme that kept coming up over and over as we talked about veiled providence, visible faith, and it's the theme of redemption. And I want to say just a few more things about redemption, because at the end of the day, that's what this story is about in Esther. That's what the story is about across the whole you know, canon of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And that's what your story is about, personally. Redemption. So we talked about redemption in terms of God putting broken things back together, of restoring things to the way that he intended them to be in the creation. That's what redemption is. It's buying something back and restoring it for its intended purposes. But the beautiful thing about redemption, and we see this in Esther so clearly, is when God redeems something, he doesn't just restore it back to how it was. He restores it back to how it was and makes it better makes it more beautiful, makes it more usable, makes it more glorious, makes it more in tune with his design. So think about that scripturally at the big picture. You know, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have a garden, right? All things stitched together well, shalom. We talked about that last week. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. But fast forward to Revelation 21 and 22, it's no longer a garden. It's an entire new earth. You see, the boundaries of the garden have been broken and it's been spread across the whole earth. So shalom, wholeness, completeness will fill the earth. The glory of God will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is what we see at the end. See, it's restoration, but it's even better. Now, think about redemption along those lines in the story of Esther. It is, in in many ways, a very bad start to this story. The whole reason this story exists, you know, the whole reason we tell this, you know, historical account is because things were bad before they were good. So the essential plot that happened in the story of Esther was that this wicked leader named Haman convinced a a, a passive ambivalent king to pass a law that was going to destroy every single one of God's people. Now, you don't think there was some spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes, right, in Haman's heart? So this law goes out. The king even himself couldn't even change the law after it goes out, if you, if, even if he wanted to. It's a done deal. All the Jewish people are going to be killed on a set day in the future. And there you have lamenting and weeping for the Jewish people, which was right and was good for them to mourn and lament because they were in danger. Things were broken. You see, so there's very real hardship in this story. It's not a, it has a happy ending, but you're in the middle of the story. This is not pleasant. This is genocide that we're talking about here. And yet in the midst of that utter evil tragedy, on the the back end of it, you see some beautiful things that God has done to actually redeem. In other words, things aren't just back to normal for the Jewish people at the end of the story. They're better. So let me give you some examples straight from the story. The Jewish people, the people themselves were moved from an endangered species, like even before the law was passed, they, they were sort of a looked down upon people. We get those clues all throughout the text. At the end of the story, they're a revered and honored people. In fact, we looked at this text a few weeks ago that tells us that other people wanted to be Jews, right? A lot of conversions happened, and other people, even if they didn't convert, they wanted to be like the Jews because they saw God's favor upon these people. So the Jewish people were moved from an endangered species to a favored status. 
Mordecai. Remember one of our heroes in the story? At the beginning of the story, he's an overlooked servant, right? He's not even recognized for saving the king's life. He's just forgotten. He's sort of put in a corner. He's that guy by the king's gate that I have to sort of walk past every day in and out of the kingdom. At the end of the story, Mordecai's not just back to where he was. He's second in command of the whole kingdom. He's the most influential Jew in the history of Judaism since the time of the kings, right? Let's talk about Esther. The beginning of the story, where is Esther? She's an orphan. She's a Jewish orphan girl, not noticed by anyone. And then she's moved in, even before the the tragedy happened, she's moved into this role of queen. But here's the thing, even when Esther was queen, before the redemption happened, Esther didn't have a voice. She was rejected by her husband. The text says he hadn't called for her in 30 days. She was honored only for her beauty, only for her body, only, the ple- only for the pleasure that she would give to her husband. What happens by the end of the story? Esther has an independent, strong, powerful voice. She's gone from being rejected by her husband to being protected by her husband. Do you remember when the king's anger goes against Haman when he finds out the plot? He's angry because someone would dare to threaten his wife. You see, he's protecting her. So Esther moves from being a rejected wife to a protected wife. She moves from being an an unknown orphan and then a queen without a voice to a woman who is seeking God's plan for her kingdom with a strong voice influencing her husband. There's a lot of themes here of redemption, of things being not just put back to rights, but being made better, being made stronger. So here's how I'd summarize all of these themes with redemption. Put it in our language today. God never wastes a good mess. Y'all, this was a mess, okay? And God didn't waste it. You see, he went far beyond fixing it He worked redemption through this mess. Another way to think about this, and this is when you can start applying this to your own life. This is hard to believe, but it's true. Hardship is often God's greatest gift to us. Hardship is where things get unstuck. Hardship is where things start to move. We were watching a movie not long ago with our daughters, and it it was uh, this kid's movie, and about 25, 30 minutes into this, I'm kind of bored out of my mind, not because it's a kid's movie, but because, like, there's no, there's no conflict, you know? There's no plot, and I'm kind of, like, finding myself distracted until the, the conflict actually happened. Now, why did I have that instinct? I had that instinct because I know that things don't move along until there's some conflict, until there's a plot, you see. Now, I had hope that this would be a story of redemption in this film, and it was. But we all long for this. Deep down, we don't like hardship, but we know this is where God is moving things along. This is, I believe, theologically speaking, why he's allowed the world to be a wreck before it becomes a beautiful kingdom. Hardship is where he is at work. It's oftentimes, oftentimes, God's greatest gift, as hard as that is for you to believe when you're in the middle of it. There is a sense... Think about it that way. That hardship, loss, tragedy are actually what make redemption possible in this sense. If we didn't have those things, we would never allow things to be redeemed in our lives. We'd never look to God. 
We'd never open our hands like this. We'd always just have this attitude of, man, God, my life's fine. It's good. Sure, you can bless me some more if you really want to, but I don't really need you, God. Hardship comes your way. Tragedy comes your way. Fear comes your way. Like, God, will you be at work? Would you redeem? You see, puts us in a posture of dependence. This is what happened for the Jewish people. And God was faithful because he's always faithful. So I'm going to invite some of you in the room to tell some stories of redemption or tell some stories of faithfulness. And as you think about what you might share, let me just give you two kind of handles and two kind of hooks. And then both Eric and myself will kind of be about in the congregation with a couple of microphones and, and we'll look for your hand to, sh- to ask who wants to share. We've got about eight or ten minutes for this time. So not a ton of time, but enough for three or four or five of you to share. Two areas I want you to think about. Some of you have seen God redeem something in your life. And you might want to share that story. Maybe it's been happening literally through this Esther series. Or maybe it's still happening. Or maybe it was a little while before. But you can reflect on this idea of God working through hardship because he's been about redeeming something in your life. That's been a part of your story. That's one area. If you've got something along those lines, share. The second area, it's a little bit different, but some of you have had a, for such a time as this moment in your life during this season. So we had these bookmarks that we gave you, and on the one, one blank side, there's some lines, and it says, for such a time as this. And the question is, what is God leading you to right now? could be a new opportunity. It could be a relationship that he's led you to that he wants you to engage in. It could be anything that you just feel like, hey, during this season of my life, I wonder if God's leading me to this thing, this person, this opportunity for such a time as this. I'd like you to share that. We'd, we'd like to hear that. This is a way that we can love each other well by speaking what God is doing, by echoing stories of redemption in our own hearts, by saying, I think God is calling me to this. So that, that's, that's the, the encouragement for you. So Eric, go ahead and grab a mic. And uh, I'm just going to open up the floor. And, and I know it's always hard to be first, but uh, I'm going to ask somebody to be first. And you know what? For some of you, you've got those like, man, I'm not sure. I got the butterflies in my chest. That, that, that probably means that uh, God wants you to share something. And so I'm going to encourage you to lean into that this morning. So who'd like to be first? Who's got a first story of redemption or for such a time as this or just anything that God's been teaching you? Thank you. Look at that, man. I didn't even finish that sentence and she's jumping right up. So here's what I'd like us to do. Since we, not all of us know each other, just introduce yourself and then share the story. Thank you. Jeremy, thanks for being a great example of that. Uh, You know, I was thinking about that. I've heard stories from many of you throughout these series very similar to Jeremy's where, hey, this is a time of transition for me to one way or another, and I've actually found God speaking to me through this story, leading me to that place. So I appreciate you sharing that. And by the way, I've been pronouncing your last name wrong for like the last two years. Sorry about that. Seriously, come on. Sartain, Sartain, okay, good, we can go. All right, uh, let, me, let me transition because I, I want to give us some time to feast together. And I want to set this up, and I'm going to invite one other person to share that's going to help set up this Purim feast. But as you know, the story of Esther culminates in this great banquet. 
it, this great celebration where the Jewish people come around and they say, God has redeemed us, right? So they started instituting this feast. And we, we talked about that you know, two or three weeks ago in this. And that's literally why we have the tables in front of us is we want to celebrate what God has done and sort of um, not exactly mimic, but in the spirit of the festival or the feast of Purim. So I want to invite up on the stage for a minute, Derek Skogland. Uh, Derek is with us visiting from... Minnesota slash Israel. He spends his time in both, but I wanted to introduce Derek, and I've asked him to give us about five minutes of background on Purim, because Derek works for, for an organization called loveisrael.org, spends a lot of time in Israel. It's a teaching ministry that's based in Israel that teaches the scriptures in Hebrew, but talks about how they point to Messiah, and the Old Testament texts all point to Messiah. So I've asked Derek, since he was here with us, he's going to be with us tonight too for the Passover feast, uh, but I asked him if he would share with us a little bit about Purim. Derek, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you, Rob. Purim is a festival to rejoice over redemption. I was so encouraged to listen to many of the messages. You got a great teaching team here at Fellowship, but they kept emphasizing redemption, 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 and that's what Purim is about. It's a month before the Passover Seder. It's the last month of the of the year, Adar, and it, it, it is basically about 30 days ahead, and it's about let's celebrate and let's start getting our minds in Passover of redemption, of knowing what God has done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. But there are three things that they do with Purim. The first is that they read the whole book of Esther. And as they read this whole book of Esther in one sitting, you never hear the word Haman. You know why you never hear it? Because everybody makes all kinds of noise. They got those New Year's rattlers that just annoy you, and they're screaming, and they're banging the table. And even though the reader reads Haman, nobody hears it because they are trying to blot out Haman's name. You see, Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. If you remember, King Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites. He was supposed to wipe them out, but he didn't. He let the king live. One man, he let the king of the Amalekites live. And Haman was a descendant of them. Well, the Amalekites were previously persecutors of the people of Israel. As they came out of Egypt, they got the manna, they got the water from the rock, and then they were attacked by the Amalekites. And God told uh, the Israelites to wipe them out, and that's where they held up uh, Moses' arms, and Joshua defeated them, uh, but still many of them lived. But the Amalekites were the descendants of the firstborn son of Esau. You see, Haman, he knew all this history, and so did Mordecai that Esau and Jacob still have this conflict that was foretold to their mother, Rebekah. There will be two nations that are going to be at war with each other. And this is the battle that is going on even in the book of Esther. And it's, it's in the book of Samuel that we read that this name of the Amalekites should be blotted out. And that's why they won't even let the name of Haman be heard by making so much noise. Secondly is this. Uh, Purim is you always have a party. You have a huge party that's a masquerade party. Now, traditionally, they dress up in beautiful gowns and crowns like queens and kings. They dress up like Mordecai. There'd be one guy with giant ears who would dress up like Haman, and he would just be ridiculed and, and uh, made fun of. But it would just be a big masquerade party. And the reason why they do this is, one, to rejoice and have a party. There's always great reasons to have parties. But secondly, they wanted to remind themselves that even in this story of redemption, that there were many people from all over the country of Persia, 
that came to faith that the God of the Jews was the true and the living God. Now, there were probably still a few false converts, but you remember at the end of the story that there, it's, it says, uh, what, where was it? Um, Esther 8.17. It says that many of them turned themselves into Jews. Many of them turned themselves into Jews, and there's different ways to translate it, for fear of the Jews, for fear that they would be persecuted by the Jews, but as well it can be translated for fear of the Jews, that the fear that the Jews had, the reverence, the awe, the respect for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they read the book of Esther, they have these huge parties, but at these huge parties, they have these magnificent feasts. And at these feasts, there's great merriment, there's a ton of eating, there's a bunch of drinking, and there's all kinds of music and dancing. And it's not just here in their house where they'd celebrate it, but they'd go and they'd haul food to their friends and to their neighbors. And as they're bringing these food to their friends and their neighbors, who do they walk by? They walk by the people living on the streets, the poor, the disenfranchised. And they go and they give food to the poor in the disenfranchised. And they welcome him in. They say, come into our party. We're having a party. It's God's redemption. You too should celebrate with us. And so you remember some of those parables of the king that Jesus spoke about where he invited all of the people in, even the poor, even those living in the trenches that, that were disenfranchised. And so that's what the book of Esther about is that God's redemption is for everyone, for anyone who would believe. That's Purim. But I want to share one more aspect of God's veiled providence in the book of Esther. You see, in the book of Esther, Haman took 12 days, and each day, what did he do? He cast lots to see which month of the year. And the first day, will I get to kill the Jews in this first month? Nope, the lots didn't come up that way. That's what Purim means. It means lots. He did it for 12 days, and on the 12th day, the lots finally came up. Then in the 12th month of the year, he could kill them. Now, when I ask you... When you think in the New Testament, the casting of lots, where does your mind drift? Okay? Think about that for a moment. Now, Haman, as he's before the king, what was his request? The king says, what should I do for the one who, who I find favor? What did he say? I want you to dress him up like the king, right? Now, think again. When you think of someone who was dressed up like a king with that casting of the lots, do you remember? They dressed Jesus up like a king. They put that scarlet robe on him, crown of thorns. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. In this story, Mordecai was praised. But we should begin to see some of these themes that are pointing here. But I want to show you the veiled part of this that's even more poignant. The month of Nisan is the first month in the Jewish calendar. And it's on the 14th of that month that we begin this celebration, Passover. It's the day of preparation. But it was on the 13th of Nisan that Haman made the deal with the king to wipe out the people. It was also on the, the wipe out the Jews. It was also on the 13th of the month that Judas struck that final deal with the, uh, with the Sanhedrin to take out Christ. It was on the 14th, Mordecai is mourning and weeping outside the gates, and Esther gets word of it. And you remember what Esther's response was? For three days and three nights, she was going to fast. Now, when I say three days and three nights, where does your mind drift? To the burial and resurrection, right? Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. So if you go the 14th, you go 15th, 16th, 17th, three days, three nights. It was on the 18th 
that the victory was won when Mordecai was defeated, his plot was unveiled, and the king had him killed. But it was on the 18th of Nisan, it was after three days and three nights, after the day of preparation, after Passover, that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, this plan of redemption wasn't just in the book of Esther, but it was pointing us to something in the future. It was pointing us to the redemption that people from all nations can have in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be celebrating tonight. We're going to share a bit more about God's plan of redemption as revealed in the Passover Seder. And uh, this Purim, this is just getting us ready, just preparing us to go and head to Passover a month from now. Uh, but uh, I hope you'll come and join us, and uh, we'll share a lot more. You'll see how God even has revealed this plan of redemption in so many ways throughout these Jewish traditions that aren't even necessarily always biblical. But God has a way of, uh, I think as was said earlier, of taking things that don't even oftentimes make sense, things that are way out of our box of thinking, and he pulls them all together. He draws all these threads together of your life and my life, and he makes a beautiful tapestry that he's going to use for his glory and his honor. So I hope you join us tonight. Hey, great insights into what we're about to do and celebrate and feast together and rejoice of God's redemption in lines of how Jewish people have been doing this and, and Christians rejoicing as we look forward to that banquet that's to come for us. We're excited about that. Now, I want to give you some instructions and then I'll pray for the meal. We, we have two tables, but there are four lines, all right? So a line on each side of the table. Start in the center. You'll see where the plates are. So whichever table you pick, start in the center and work your way out uh, this way. And uh, you, we've got a little bit of time to work with. It, we'll let you know when it's time to go get your kids. So if you have kids in the Learning Center, just hang with us here. This is part of our worship service for a little bit. Then we'll let you know when to get your kids. And you're welcome to get your kids and bring them back in here. And we're just going to enjoy this time together as a body. So let's pray for the meal. Father, we thank you for food. As Derek was just talking about, the rejoicing, the celebration, the, the opportunity to have a feast and a party. Uh, God, you're, you're in those things. In fact, you instruct and command us to remember and celebrate multiple times throughout the Bible. And so we seize now on this story of Esther in this Feast of Purim, and we remember that our full redemption is found in Christ. And we celebrate that. We celebrate the stories of redemption that we've heard shared around this room this morning and many more that have been lived out that were not spoken. And so we want to commit to thanking you for the redemption that is true because of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would bless this food as we eat. In Jesus' name, amen.